Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 36, Europe's Cartographer. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our last episode on the Peace of Pressburg and the subsequent Italian campaigns in Naples, led by Andre Massena. I have to say, while writing the Austerlitz episode was probably my favorite in the series so far, for obvious reasons, Massena's overlooked campaign in Naples might be my next favorite. I mean, it had a lot that is seldom talked about. Wild characters, brutal guerrilla insurgencies, royals fleeing their capitals. It was essentially a mini harbinger of what was to come over the next four years for the French and for Napoleon. Because while Napoleon would enjoy much sympathy from neighboring and allied nations, he would receive equal scorn and hatred for his conquering and, at times, marauding Grand Armée. And much of that largely had to do with what we'll be speaking about today, and that is Napoleon's rearranging of Europe's deck chairs in only the way he saw fit. And, of course, Europe's reaction to it. And, spoiler alert, it is going to lead to yet another war. Now, I do want to preface the episode with a small disclaimer. I mentioned a few times throughout the series that we do need some transition episodes between campaigns and battles, and this one happens to be one such episode. As a result, it's likely going to be a little shorter than some of our previous episodes, but fear not, because there is only a small interlude between Austerlitz and the War of the Fourth Coalition, which was already in the process of starting back up again, which is something we will touch on towards the end of the episode today. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Now, rewinding a bit from July 1806 back to the post-Austerlitz piece, Napoleon would, over the course of the next three months, essentially rewrite the map of Europe while also forging alliances with many of his enemies, namely the Ottoman Empire, with whom he had been at war with only seven years earlier in Egypt. Now, he did much of this, as we learned last episode, by placing his family members either on the thrones of newly conquered territories or marrying them into already established ones. We mentioned Joseph Bonaparte last week being made king of Naples, something which would turn out to be a massive mistake in the long run for Napoleon. But in the immediate aftermath of Austerlitz, he also married away his stepson, Eugène, to the princess of the newly formed kingdom of Bavaria, Augusta, and Josephine's cousin, Stephanie, to Karl Ludwig of Baden. He wanted to form a Bonaparte dynasty that dominated the European continent, ensure his power both during and after his lifetime, and, perhaps most importantly, create a sense of loyalty to his imperial reign amongst his, well, subjects. Subjects he assumed would welcome the idea as escaping the yokes of the old regimes, but subjects whom he greatly misjudged in many parts of Europe. Because it turns out people are not exactly super thrilled when you tell them that they went from being Austrian to French. Who knew? Now, he would go on to make the rest of his brothers kings around Europe, which we'll get into in due time, but none would turn out to be like their brother Napoleon, even if they still shared the same last name. In fact, only one, Louis, was considered a competent and well-respected ruler, but we'll get to the younger Bonaparte later on in this episode, because it was just for that very reason that he would become a major thorn in the side of Napoleon. After all, when your legacy in the United Kingdom is that you were the, quote, good Bonaparte, well, 
that's not exactly going to bode well for Big Brother now, is it? Napoleon didn't stop with his family, though. After Auschwitz, he began a campaign of naming numerous members of his inner circle to key positions of government in the territories now under French control. His marshals would all become dukes and title holders of various lands throughout Europe. Murat would even succeed Joseph Bonaparte as king of Naples, as Joseph was to be made king of Spain in 1808, though the rest were made into dukes and princes, mainly in Central Europe and, of course, in Italy. Many of the positions he created were almost out of thin air, but after becoming emperor, Napoleon did establish a list of titles that could be bestowed on those most loyal to him, though he did make Talleyrand a prince, so not sure that ended up being in his best interest, but that's a story for another episode. Now, while Napoleon was busy rearranging the continental borders and dolling out titles and lands to his family and confidants, he was also hard at work trying to deal with matters of state, and for much of 1806, at least prior to the hostilities picking back up, he was consumed with actual French politics as opposed to, you know, European ones. The War of the Third Coalition, and specifically Austerlitz, had been immensely profitable for France and Napoleon, and he directed his Conseil d'État to invest that money back into the country and back into the war machine. Now, one of the main reasons that Napoleon was able to bring financial stability to France throughout his reign was the fact that many of the industries were devoted to the war effort. But he was also able to implement significant duties in import taxes from other countries, many of whom were, of course, now allies. And he also levied taxes on vices like alcohol and tobacco, which brought in significant revenues for the French treasury. And all of this was accompanied by the fact that there was a steady stream of loans coming from the Bank of France, which further incentivized the population to put their money into the institution. And of course, it didn't hurt that there was a steady stream of indemnities, hard specie, and, well, loot coming from many of France's new allies, but hey, at least they did know what to do with the money instead of wasting it on ridiculous splendor like the Bourbons did. Now during the interwar months, Napoleon also issued numerous decrees, ranging from peasantry, trade, military attire, and religion. One such decree was his infamous May 1806 Decree on Jews and Ursary in which the state accused the French Jewish population of unjust greed and lacking civic morality when it came to the loan repayments, mainly in the Alsace region of eastern France. Now, Napoleon's relationship with the Jews of Europe is often remarked on, especially in a relatively positive light when compared to his European contemporaries, though, again, in my opinion, this view is a little narrow-minded. Indeed, Napoleon did have a respected, if somewhat ignorant, view of the Jews on the whole, but much of this like many of his policies, were self-serving. The Jews, or really anyone, could be a friend today, but an enemy tomorrow, if it meant that France would be better off for it. Now, the overwhelming majority of France's Jews at the time did live in the Alsace region, which bordered the German frontier. Napoleon became suspicious of the money-lending practices that many of the local Jewish population had employed for local farmers. And while money lending has become an unfortunate stereotype of many Jews today, at the time it was actually one of the few jobs European Jews were able to get in many countries. Napoleon also likely viewed this practice as a threat to the Bank of France, which was doing much of the same thing, but with private lenders, i.e. Jews, earning the interest rather than the French treasury, he saw this as a direct threat to French interests. Now we've covered some aspects of Napoleon's mercurial relationship with the Jews already in our episode on the Egyptian campaign. But it is safe to say that while tolerant in the grand scheme of 19th century Europe, he was hardly some radical activist for a burgeoning Zionist movement. 
Again, if it didn't serve the interests of France, also see his own, he was quick to make you just as much a villain as any of the coalition armies were. And were the Jews used as some sort of political pawn? Probably, though the truth is always as far more muddled. But we are going to come back to Napoleon's feelings on the Jews, but again, like many in his time, his view should be viewed through the context of the age in which he was living. Now, while Napoleon found time to deal with matters of state, he, of course, always had one eye on the rest of Europe. And in the spring and summer of 1806, he made two of his biggest decisions when it came to the realignment of the European political structure, the founding of the Kingdom of Holland and the formation of the Confederation of the Rhine. We'll deal with the former first and introduce her um, native king, Louis Bonaparte. The Kingdom of Holland was formed back in March of 1806 when Napoleon, tired of the facade of the Republican virtue being utilized in the Batavian Republic, decided that he needed to better control the troublesome country that was of critical importance to her northern flank with Britain and the Norwegian countries just across the sea. Napoleon felt that the Batavian Republic was becoming too independent and that they actually had the gall to dare question his authority over the Dutch possession. He was basically left with two options. The first was to outright annex it into France and hope that there wouldn't be any major resistance from the local population. But this also meant bringing in a large Protestant population into a largely Catholic France, and it also presented the possibility of sowing the seeds for insurrection by giving a furious Dutch population a reason to seek outside help, most likely from Britain. Now, the other was just to get rid of the Republic and make her into a new client state. Napoleon chose the latter and turned the former Batavian Republic into the Kingdom of Holland. And while Napoleon likely had some hesitations, especially considering the weakness of his older brother, Joseph, down in Naples, Louis was surprisingly welcomed by the local population of which he was now sovereign over, and he turned out to be a relatively effective ruler in his own right, albeit a puppet to his older brother Napoleon. But ironically, this is exactly what turned out to be a major problem for Napoleon, because Louis went, well, native, and decided that he enjoyed being Dutch much more than he enjoyed being French. So with that, let's give a quick introduction into King Louis I of Holland, better known to us as Louis Bonaparte. Louis, like the rest of his siblings, was born in Ajaccio, Corsica on September 2nd, 1778. So he was almost exactly nine years younger than older brother Napoleon. The fourth of the five brothers born to Carlo and Leticia, Louis received a military education like Napoleon at the École Militaire, and he would eventually join the army, serving on campaign with his older brother in Egypt, and received a commission in the unit thanks to their relationship. Now, Napoleon, never one to miss out on a nepotism opportunity, eventually helped Louis earn a generalship by the ripe age of 25, something which even Louis thought a bit outrageous. He, like his older brother Lucien, assisted Napoleon in overthrowing the Directory during the coup of 18 Brumaire, and after Napoleon took power as first consul, Louis was given a position on Napoleon's council and was able to be kept on as an aide-de-camp on Napoleon's military attaché. In 1802, at Napoleon's urging, Louis marries Josephine's daughter, Hortense, despite her objection to the Union. Now, while the marriage was amicable enough, it was also loveless, and both Louis and Hortense took on numerous lovers throughout the marriage. Nevertheless, they were intimate enough to produce three sons, Napoleon Charles Bonaparte, born in 1802, who died before his fifth birthday of the crew, 
Napoleon Louis Bonaparte, born in 1804, who would succeed his father as King of Holland for just under two weeks and die of measles at the young age of 26. And finally, Charles Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, born in 1808, better known to history as Napoleon III and founder of the Second French Empire, who bore a striking resemblance to his father. Now Louis, like many of his other siblings, spent much of the consulate in early imperial years as a close confidant to his emperor brother. But he, like most of his other brothers, would prove to be far more trouble than help as an administrator in the French client states. When Napoleon made Louis King of Holland in June of 1806, figuring that in doing so, he would be able to more easily control the troublesome, though crucial, French neighbor to the Northeast, Louis had other ideas. Because Louis, as it would turn out, was far more like his brother than, say, Joseph or Lucien. He had ambitions of being a capable ruler, and he had little intention of being a mere puppet to his brother in Holland, even if that was the intended goal. And, in fact, he actually had the audacity of wanting to be a just and capable head of state. What lunacy, right? Now, to help endear himself to his newly founded subjects, Louis styled himself with the Dutch translation of Louis to Ludwig, and he also made a concerted effort to learn Dutch as well as to speak it with his court advisors. In one likely apocryphal story, his Dutch was so poor at the start that he allegedly referred to himself as the Rabbit of Holland rather than the King of Holland, mispronouncing the Dutch words for King and Holland, respectively. Now, real or not, it did show his true intention to help relate to the people, something which Napoleon began to take notice of rather quickly. Because, you see, Louis had a bout of what many of us today would call going native. It was also well known that Louis suffered from mental health issues throughout his life, with some debating on whether he suffered from bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or OCD. But because of this, he was meticulous in his attempts to Dutchify his court, making his ministers renounce their French citizenship, something which further strained his marriage to Hortense, as he requested she do so as well. He forced them to speak Dutch at court, even though most of them only spoke French, or at best only had a rudimentary knowledge of Dutch. And he was so enamored with the country, that he constantly moved his capital around to the great annoyance of his advisors as well as Napoleon. He had a difficulty staying in one place at any given time, which some, again, have attributed to the state of his mental health. Napoleon even sided with Hortense on keeping Louis' sons back in France with her, worried that he was going to brainwash them into becoming some sort of Dutch resistance leaders in a movement towards independence. But Napoleon also grew weary of Louis' commitments to France as time wore on, especially economically. Now, again, it was an open secret that many of the French loans Napoleon had accused the Jews of holding a monopoly over were also coming directly from Dutch bankers, many of whom had immense capital to dole out. But Napoleon wanted to counter this by reducing the value of French loans from Dutch investors by as much as two-thirds, meaning that a significant amount of foreign capital was stripped from the Dutch treasury almost in an instant. So, again, you see what I mean about Napoleon's self-serving interests. Back to the Jewish bankers, he and the French went. But Napoleon also saw Louis as weak when it came to the matter of defending the French state. In fact, he deliberately pulled out troops in 1808 to redeploy them in Eastern Europe in preparation for their invasion of Russia. But as a result of this, the Dutch were left with only 9,000 men to defend the country. And, when the British attempted to capture Antwerp and Flushing in 1809, Louis was unable to defend Holland and had to request France for assistance. This, more than anything, gave Napoleon the reason he finally needed to request for Louis' ousting and 
after he sent in 80,000 militiamen to help combat the invasion, Napoleon demanded that Louis resign as king, citing the fact that he was incapable of defending the country from outside attack. Now, we'll get into the British attempts to capture the Dutch cities and what has come to be known as the Walkering Campaign later on in the series. But needless to say, it was all a death knell to Louis' rule in Holland. He would abdicate the throne less than a year later, whereupon his son, Napoleon Louis Bonaparte, would succeed him as king for two weeks. Emperor Napoleon, by now furious with the majority of his family members ruining his client states around Europe, would then abolish the monarchy of Holland and annex the country into France directly, something he probably should have done before he instated Louis on the throne. Louis Bonaparte was then granted asylum in Austria by Emperor Francis I. Keep that in mind for a second. And he spent the remainder of the Napoleonic Wars writing to his brother and requesting that he be reinstated on the Dutch throne, but of course to no avail. He would eventually return in 1840 at the age of 62, and he was cheered upon his return when the local citizens heard of the news of his entry into the country. He died in 1846 at the age of 67, the last first-generation contender to the French imperial throne, which would, as we mentioned earlier, be passed to his youngest son. Now, I know that was a bit of a tangent on Louis' life, especially since we will return to him intermittently throughout the series. But I did think it was important to highlight it because Louis, unlike the rest of the Bonaparte clan not named Napoleon, was actually respected amongst his subjects. He tried his best to govern them as if he were one of them, and rather than kowtowing to Napoleon's wishes, he tried to rule his subjects as an independent statesman rather than a political pawn of Europe's puppet master. And while Louis may not be amongst the greatest Dutch royals of all time, he is remembered fondly today in the Netherlands and abroad. We will miss him, and we will leave him here for today. Now, backing up to the summer of 1806, after Napoleon had sent Louis off to Holland to be his eyes and ears there, he was also in the process of completely rearranging the political framework of Central Europe. With newly won territories in the German provinces, Napoleon wanted to completely offset the power balance in German states from the entity they formerly swore allegiance to, the Holy Roman Empire, and their Emperor Francis II. And we mentioned last episode that Baden, Bavaria, and Württemberg were elevated to kingdoms and signed an alliance with Napoleon. And this, along with the other territorial losses to the French, meant that Francis's power and influence in Germany were starting to wane significantly. Napoleon also used the very idea of the Holy Roman Empire against itself. Having been formed as a pseudo-security alliance along with the benefit of mutual trade amongst the numerous duchies and principalities, Napoleon began to use his own reassurances of security and shared economic interests to persuade the many German dukes and princes to join his side. So, rather than have to deal with all of those, like, borders and customs and things, Napoleon just declared the formation of the Confederation of the Rhine with himself as its protector. Basically, a direct economic and military competitor to the Holy Roman Empire. On July 12, 1806, the Treaty of the Confederation of the Rhine was signed, and the protector of the Confederation was formally created as a hereditary title vested directly to the Emperor of the French, i.e. Napoleon. Your move, Emperor Francis. Now, the immediate implications for the Confederation's founding were substantial for all the major players on the European continent. First, for the French, it meant that Napoleon had instant access to some 70,000 soldiers with which he could now absorb into his Grand Armée, 
and that is something that he would do in the coming months once the war broke out again. He also gained economic access to another 15 million people, many of them in some of the wealthiest German provinces. So, yeah, when we said that Napoleon had a lot of foreign capital coming into his Bank of France, this is precisely what we were referring to. But moreover, it put a duality in place that directly challenged Francis's authority over the German states that had been his by birthright since the crowning of Charlemagne over a thousand years earlier. And so, with further pressure from Napoleon, after many of the German states formally seceded from the Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Emperor Francis II declared on August 6th, 1806, that the empire would be dissolved. As such, he lost his title of Emperor Francis II of the Holy Roman Empire and became simply Emperor of Austria, Francis I. This is why, when we were talking about Louis Bonaparte, I said Francis I, not Francis II, as when Louis was given asylum, the Holy Roman Empire had ceased to exist for almost five years. Aren't European titles lovely? At any rate, the Holy Roman Empire, an entity which had existed for a millennia, was over in a seminal moment in European history. Now, on the surface, Francis certainly didn't need to do this. He would have kept the Union intact, and he would have competed alongside Napoleon for hegemony over Germany. But again, Francis knew that if Napoleon was able to garner enough support locally, he probably would have then dissolved the Confederation of the Rhine and just declared himself Holy Roman Emperor. And, well, who would have stopped him? After all, all of the realms would soon be under Napoleon's vice grip anyway. So, to placate his court, as well as to save himself further embarrassment, he did what he thought was best and dissolved the entity in its entirety. Now, news of the decision was mixed, with some reacting with indifference, while many in Vienna believed it to be the beginning of the end of the times, the event being compared to the fall of Rome itself. Many of the former German states, even those who had defected over to the Confederation, were shocked at the news of its dissolution, and the occasion became synonymous with national shame for the German people. Indeed, so incomprehensible was the end of the Holy Roman Empire that many believed it to be a plot by anti-German conspirators, or worse, an outright lie. Dan, further adding to the outrage, was that Francis's decision to dissolve the empire in its entirety was believed to be outside of his legal authority, and many principalities refused to accept his decision and continued on as if the Holy Roman Empire were still an acting body. They believed he had the authority to abdicate his position as emperor, but to dissolve the empire? That was something different entirely. But whatever the reaction, the Holy Roman Empire was dead. Rest in peace. Never again would she exist, though her dissolution was an early catalyst for the eventual unification of the German states and the formation of the German Confederation after the Congress of Vienna in 1815. But we'll get to that after we see Napoleon off in Waterloo. Now internationally, the Holy Roman Empire's dissolution was also met with a mixed reaction with some countries, such as Russia, offering no official position on the matter. Denmark and Sweden, both ruled by kings of German stock, both reclaimed their principalities and proclaimed that they had hoped one day the empire's restoration would be possible. Prussia, who was the other loser in the entire ordeal, was left to watch from the sidelines as their influence in central and southern Germany waned significantly also. Seeing now that their inaction in the War of the Third Coalition had led to Napoleon coming right to their doorstep, 
they were keen not to make that same mistake a second time. Because now, everyone, it's time to talk about the fourth coalition. Backing up yet again, war was basically inevitable even in the spring of 1806. And while the War of Third Coalition was still technically raging in southern Italy, Napoleon was trying his best to avoid another war in the middle of the continent. He was conciliatory towards both Prussia and Russia, and had even wanted to form an alliance with the two countries, something which horrified the British, who were also in the throes of working on peace negotiations with France. But the British lost their Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, in January of 1806 to a sudden case of death, and while the succeeding Whig party was united in checking Napoleon's power, they did not have the clout that Pitt had accrued in his nearly two decades in office. Napoleon used the occasion to continue his push into Hanover, remember a German state owned by British King George III, as well as to kick out Swedish forces in April of 1806 who were trying to reclaim the land for the British. So without any resolution to these issues in sight, and with Pitt's successor, William Grenville, not exactly Teddy Roosevelt, to Pitt's William McKinley, France and Britain would remain in a state of war. Now, Napoleon entertained forming a military alliance with Russia, and even sent a formal treaty for signature to St. Petersburg for Alexander's approval, which he was close to signing. But then, at the last minute, he pulled out because he had gotten word that France's ambassador in the Ottoman Empire, General Sebastiani, had encouraged the Turks to attack the Russians. Now, there is still some debate today as to the validity of this claim, though it's likely that Sebastiani was working under the orders of our good old friend Talleyrand, who despised the idea of a Russian-French partnership. Nevertheless, Napoleon was left dumbfounded that Alexander would turn down the alliance, as he thought it was a great deal for both countries, with each being able to hem in Prussia between them and exert their own influence in the region. But, again, it was rejected, and Russia decided to sign on to a new coalition with Britain and Prussia. And that, of course, brings us to the last major player in the Fourth Coalition, Prussia. You see, Prussia, like Britain, was also infuriated that France would not return Hanover. But their biggest reason for wanting to go to war was, as we mentioned earlier, the French's attempt to basically reform and take over all of Germany with impunity. Frederick William cringed at the thought of having the German states bowing at Napoleon's feet instead of his own and he was privately terrified that French soldiers now had free reign to essentially walk up to the Prussian frontier and march directly to Berlin. Now, while he formed up his war cabinet, without any consultation of the other coalition allies, by the way, one final nail in the coffin came that made Prussia's decision to go to war absolute. The arrest and execution of the German nationalist Johann Philipp Palm in August of 1806. And so, as we always do, let's give a quick introduction of Johann Philipp Palm. Palm was born in December of 1768, so he was just about 10 months older than Napoleon. Originally from Wittenberg, he became an accomplished bookseller in Nuremberg, Bavaria, inheriting a business from his father-in-law. Now, despite living in relative obscurity, he became a German martyr when, in August of 1806, a pamphlet titled, quote, Germany in her deep humiliation was sold at his bookstore. The pamphlet strongly attacked Napoleon and his soldiers' conduct while in Bavaria during the War of the Third Coalition, and Palm, an ardent German nationalist in his own right, actively promoted the pamphlet's writings. Now, after hearing of the publication, 
Napoleon ordered Palm arrested after being unable to find who actually wrote the pamphlet, which is still a matter of controversy to this day. After his arrest, Napoleon ordered that he be put on a military trial and executed in 24 hours, which he promptly did on August 25th in Braunau, Austria, perhaps more infamous today as being the birthplace of Adolf Hitler. Palm's arbitrary arrest, show trial, and execution not only enraged the German public and made him a national martyr, it became the spark that lit the Prussian war powder keg. On the same day of Palm's indictment, if we want to call it that, Frederick William issued an ultimatum to Napoleon demanding that all French troops be moved west of the Rhine by October 8th or they would be considered combatants. Napoleon, who had tried his best to avoid war with the mighty Prussian army, decided that if Frederick William wanted to fight, he was going to get one. And more. And so with Napoleon also realizing that Russia was now likely to join Prussia, he readied his marshals for their next assault. As the summer turned to fall in 1806, with only two months of technical peace at hand, a new war was on the horizon. And so with that, join us next episode as we begin our journey on the war of the Fourth Coalition. <laughs>